0: This is The Hindu on Books, a weekly podcast from India's national newspaper on the latest and the best from the world of literature.
1: Hello and welcome to The Hindu Books Podcast. I'm Anand Krishnan, your host for today in this episode we are joined by vijay gokhale who spent nearly four decades in the indian foreign service and retired as foreign secretary in january 2020 over his long career as a diplomat gokhale has spent a long time dealing with china including as the ambassador in beijing as well as several assignments in beijing hong kong and taipei he is the author of tiananmen square the making of a protest that was published earlier this year and today we are going to be talking about his latest book The Long Game, How the Chinese Negotiate with India. In this timely book, Gokhale looks at China's negotiating strategies in the relationship with India through the prism of six significant events in the relationship. These include the recognition by India of the PRC in 1949, the agreement on trade and intercourse between Tibet and India in 1954, the nuclear test of 1998, recognition of Sikkim by China in 2005, negotiations on the 123 nuclear deal in 2008, and finally, the listing of Masood Azhar as a terrorist in the UNSC that took a decade and was completed in 2019. In this episode, we will be revisiting some of those moments in the relationship, and perhaps more importantly, reflect on the lessons for some of India's contemporary problems with China. Thank you so much, Ambassador Gokhale, for joining us today.
0: Thank you, Anand. Thank you for having me on your podcast.
1: If I can begin with uh, the first chapters of your book that look at India's recognition of the PRC and the 1954 agreement on Tibet, uh, you write there was a quote of poverty of tactics and really a mix of emotionalism and conjecture and how we negotiated with the Chinese. Given that our leaders and officials that we had at the time, including Prime Minister Nehru, by most accounts were quite brilliant, some had a legal background, it's quite surprising that they did end up uh, with suboptimal negotiations with China. So could you share your thoughts on how that happened? Uh, And more specifically, uh, in both those instances, did we really end up giving away something for nothing in the hope of goodwill rather than concrete outcomes or commitments from China?
0: Anand, uh, before I answer your questions, I just want your readers to uh, understand why I wrote this book. There are a number of wonderful books on individual issues related to India-China relations. Books about the issue of Tibet, books about the issue of the India-China boundary, books about Sikkim and so on, but there are relatively few books on the gamut of diplomatic relations that covers a 60 or 70 year period and on an analysis of how this relationship developed and how both sides approached it, negotiated it and what the outcomes were. So this was my objective in writing this book. And when I was writing it, I was clear that I was writing it for the ordinary Indian citizen who is curious about India-China relations and not for the academic world or for the research world. Now, coming to the questions that you posed, what I tried to show in the first two chapters uh, of my book is that there were certain disadvantages that India faced in its early negotiations with China, whereas the Chinese leadership had some experience in foreign affairs, because the communists, even when they were a revolutionary party fighting the civil war, were dealing with the Soviet Union, the United States and Britain, because of the Second World War, and with the Japanese, and therefore had some diplomatic experience, the Indian leadership, including, future Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru and other leaders had very little diplomatic experience. We were fighting the British in our own homeland and there was very relatively less interaction with foreign countries nor was there any need to do that. Essentially, India's foreign relations therefore were being handled by the British and not by the Indians. So when we became independent, we had we were relatively inexperienced in diplomacy even in comparison to the chinese but more importantly after we became independent we perhaps neglected the creation of a foreign service uh, excuse me a foreign policy structure which would support the government in the in the execution of foreign policy and although i don't give any specific instances in the book. Uh, The Chinese did it differently. Uh, When they uh, assumed power in 1949, they set about very consciously creating not only a foreign service, which of course the government of India also did in 1947, but in creating the supporting infrastructure, the training institutions, the think tanks and the strategic community that would surround that foreign ministry and the mechanism by which the foreign ministry would consult with other wings and elements of the communist party and the new communist state. So in sum, in the early years, not only did we have diplomatic inexperience in, uh, in thought trust to the Chinese, we also had weak institutions. And I think the outcome was therefore that we were unable to derive maximum benefit from our diplomacy. Although, as I try to point out in the book, we held some pretty good cards uh, in the early years after
1: independence. Coming to one of those uh, instances where we were negotiating with them with, with fairly good cards, if we can look at the 1954 agreement with Tibet. Can you take us through uh, your reflections on how that was handled? Uh, There's one point of debate that's long been debated on whether uh, India at the time should have maybe tied it to the unresolved boundary or not. Can you share your thoughts with, looking back now, how that was handled in
0: 1954? Uh, Anand, uh, you know, my focus in the book was to try and, decipher how the chinese handled the issue rather than how the indian side handled it uh, firstly i felt there are quite a few books about how the indian side handled it and secondly uh, i really wanted to focus on whether we uh, could understand chinese negotiating strategy so without giving away too much of the book because i really think it is a book which uh, your reader should read and, and decide Upon. Uh, uh, what I essentially did was I looked at whether the Chinese had a clear objective, a strategy, and then what tactics they adopted in the execution of that strategy. The objective was clear, of course. Uh, that was that they wanted to re- recover Tibet, which in 1911, after the collapse of the Chinese Empire, had more or less become semi-independent or independent or autonomous, whichever way you wish to describe it. Uh, And this particular vision was not a vision articulated in 1949. It was a vision which uh, the leaders of the Communist Party had articulated as early as the 1930s. Uh, And this vision had been articulated not just within the country, but to foreign correspondents. So, in a sense, we might have missed the fact that very early on the Chinese had clearly signaled or rather the Chinese Communist Party had clearly signaled that it intended to recover Tibet and other so-called outlying parts of the Chinese empire. So I think that was point number one, a clear objective. Secondly, it was a question of strategy. Now here, of course, they were fully conscious of the fact that not only were they not in the physical possession of territory, at least not until late 1950, early 1951, but that the opposite of the opposite side of Tibet was a country that they wanted friendship with because the other alternative, which is making India an adversary would be dangerous uh, in view of the fact that they were already facing enormous threats in in the East from the united states and its allies so the strategy had to be tailored to an objective that might have been achieved militarily but which they would have preferred to achieve diplomatically and here i really try to bring out how cleverly the chinese made this strategy so that they virtually persuaded india to um, uh, to agree to their um, uh, whole position on Tibet. Now, it's interesting because you see the same kind of persuasion used by the Chinese leadership in the Geneva Conference of 1954 or the Indochina question. So, although I don't mention this part about the Indochina question because it was not a part of the book, but what I want to tell your listeners and readers is that uh, the Chinese were not engaged in a fly by the seat of your pants kind of strategy. It was strategizing before uh, proceeding with the tactics. And the tactics were determined on the basis of strategy. And a lot of my uh, writings on the chapter dealing with uh, Tibet is how the Chinese then unfolded those tactics and essentially achieved their goal uh, with. No bloodshed,
1: bloodlessly. No, I do. uh, I would tell listeners as well. um, For me personally, I really enjoyed the chapter on Tibet for how China so early on uh, went about with its objectives. Uh, And I think that in all seven chapters of the book, you really go deep into helping us understand uh, the Chinese mind, the way they approach negotiations. I found it fascinating. Uh, Coming to some of the elements of how they negotiate uh, I really found interesting the chapter on the 123 agreement, which shed light on how they negotiate when you look at a multilateral setting. Uh, and, and one point that you make is how they often try to hide behind other countries uh, and, and kind of conceal their own objectives, which was essentially the heart of what they were doing uh, back then with the 123 agreement. And for India, obviously, the key was, as you say, trying to isolate China. Can you share a little bit about that whole episode in terms of how China works multilaterally, often trying to hide behind other countries, and what you think is relevant 10 years on, especially when you look at the fact that perhaps when India is still unsuccessful in the current approach to get into the NSG, do you think that in the last 10 years, something has changed and China is perhaps less afraid than it was in the past in terms of, for example, being isolated?
0: Arant, if you look at the book, one theme that runs through all the chapters is the use of grand deception as a legitimate strategy of Chinese diplomacy. Uh, And what is interesting to me was that they did not see any contradiction on the one hand in practicing grand deception, and on the other hand of talking about mutual trust. Now, this grand deception is there both when they deal with us bilaterally and as we discovered in the 90s and in the in the current century, uh, when they deal with us multilaterally, uh, and we really saw this uh, on the two issues that I talk about in the book relating to uh, the nuclear tests of 1998, and then more clearly during the one-two-three deal. Now, as to the second uh, proposition that you made, that uh, is it that the Chinese are no longer afraid of uh, taking a position. I would again say that if we were to look at Chinese diplomacy uh, from the very start of the People's Republic of China, uh, the Chinese in fact were never scared or hesitant about taking a stand and sticking by it. If you look at the Korean crisis of 1950, the decision of the Chinese to challenge the Americans and the South Koreans when they crossed the 38th parallel and then to hold the 38th parallel, uh, that itself should indicate to us that the Chinese, if their national security is seriously threatened or if their interests require it, will take a stand. Although their usual position is to hide behind others or not to take a frontal position. And you see this in various events uh, that take place in China's diplomatic history from 1950 onwards. I think what has changed now in the the times we now live in is that China's power has exponentially increased and therefore their willingness to stand uh, alone even in isolation, in preserving the national interest, is much more pronounced. So it is again a change of style, not a change of substance. Because, as I demonstrate in the book, on on a number in a number of chapters, uh, while they prefer to hide behind others, when it comes to the final denouement, they step forward, and then. They really don't look at what implications there will be for the bilateral relationship. They try to secure their national interests and then they subsequently deal with any fallout that occurs. So, that was essentially the message that I took away from the uh, chapter on the 123 deal with the United States and the whole saga of how India eventually prevailed over China in the um, nuclear suppliers group to get the one two three deal through and to get a clean waiver.
1: The other element that I really enjoyed that I thought was a uh, running theme of the book was the use of delaying uh, as a as a kind of strategic approach in negotiations. And I think that I also found it on a personal level. I think anyone who's lived in China it resonates where uh, things may get endlessly delayed, either in a way to suss out your own bottom line or just to avoid taking a stand. Um, and I thought that that's something that's so interesting that we're seeing, uh, I think, reflected in so many aspects of China's diplomacy. Uh, I personally enjoy the Masood chapter as well. At the time, as someone who was reporting on it for 10 years, uh, reporting the same story essentially every year when they would keep blocking it, uh, blocking the attempt to sanction it relentlessly. Can you speak a little bit about this whole approach of delaying uh, is it something unique, you think, in any ways, to how uh, China negotiates?
0: I don't want to use the word delay, Anand. I would prefer to use the word timing. The Chinese, I feel, after uh, doing a lot of work on their diplomacy over the last 70 years, uh, have an impeccable sense of time. They understand how to use time to achieve diplomatic objectives on how to uh, 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 extend the time period. And what they do essentially by extending the time period is that they buy time either to do homework or to strengthen their position in some manner or to gain allies or for any other purpose. So the objective of delay, as you put it, is essentially buying time to strengthen the position for negotiation. And at the same time, to trap the other side against the time deadlines. Uh, now, here, uh, if you look at almost any action that China has taken with almost any country, uh, you will see this factor operating. You will see this, for instance, in the negotiations uh, in 1971 between Henry Kissinger and Chow and Lai. Chow and Lai was aware when the negotiations were taking place that a US-Soviet summit was also due and that the Americans had delayed the US-Soviet summit because Nixon felt that he would go to Moscow in a stronger position if he had China under his belt. So, Chow and lai essentially used time to try and extract the maximum concessions from the Americans by showing no anxiety whatsoever in progressing matters. Whereas Kissinger was interested in nailing the issue down of bilateral openings, China continued to drag out the negotiation on Taiwan uh, and eventually did secure the the, the, uh, American recognition that there was only one China. Uh, You see this again uh, in the uh, Sino-Soviet normalization uh, before Gorbachev came to uh, China in 1989, he had in his famous speech in Vladivostok in 1986, talked about the opening to China. But China very cleverly kept on suggesting that we should make progress on the boundary issue between the Soviet Union and China and talk about other things uh, before we talk about the summit. And they pushed the Soviet Union as far as they could to gain major concessions before Gorbachev came. Uh, I could relate a whole series of other incidents where they use time. So, I think that they are masters of using time and they understand how time can be used in diplomacy. Uh, On the contrary, I would say that certainly in the early years of our independence, we put ourselves under time pressure. And this is one of the the critical points I make in my book. Uh, We are keen to nail down an agreement, uh, to announce it, to uh, proclaim to the world that we have resolved an issue. Uh, and that, in a sense, puts time pressure on us. Uh, over the years, of course, we have learned uh, to, to handle that. And I think we have demonstrated in very recent interactions with the Chinese side uh, that we too can uh, handle time in a diplomatic way so that we don't get trapped against the time deadlines. Uh, I won't be more specific than that, but I think you understand what i am saying. Uh, Nonetheless, this is a fascinating aspect of Chinese diplomacy, which deserves much more study.
1: Is time pressure an inherent weak point for democracies because you have term limits, you have elected leaders who want these deliverables and may rush negotiations to get them? So is that something that democracies just have to live with?
0: To some extent, yes, because after all, uh, politics is a four or five or six year cycle. Uh, and, and all leaders want to deliver uh, achievements to their people, whether there is a domestic or foreign policy. But nevertheless, I think it's a question of learning how to uh, tackle the Chinese tactic of using time to get benefits in negotiations. And I think the, 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 the chapter uh, that I write on, on uh, uh, the sixth chapter on, on how we handle the Masood Azhar issue, I think indicates that India has is learning the lessons. It has learned its lessons there. And that India has understood how time can be used uh, not only to uh, withstand Chinese pressure but also to put pressure on the Chinese. So I think one of the um, impressions I hope the readers have when they finish the book is that if you look at the entire arc of negotiations with China from 1949 to 2019, You see a steady learning process in India and I do feel, therefore, that uh, the Indian Indian diplomacy uh, is much more capable now of dealing with the Chinese than they were in 1947 or in 1949. Uh, And that notwithstanding the fact that there is a very substantial difference in our economic and military capabilities. Uh, we are capable of of, uh, uh, using some of the elements that we have learned to negotiate with the Chinese.
1: And on the Masudasar issue, I wanted to just flag one uh, revelation from your book that struck me was this improbable comment from the Chinese that he had, quote, retired, which uh, left me quite shocked uh, reading that chapter, which tells you that uh, what they were saying publicly at the time, which was upholding themselves as standing with India and other countries on terrorism. They were saying these things publicly. But it turns out privately, when they were negotiating, they were saying something completely the opposite. So is that something that, uh, as someone who has negotiated with them, uh, is that par for the course?
0: It is not unusual for the Chinese to be insensitive. They talk of, sensi- of mutual sensitivity but in fact what they mean is that the other side must be sensitive to their relation to their issues uh, they are not necessarily sensitive uh, to the issues of their opposite numbers and in some cases that insensitivity is uh, is is actually funny and laughable as it was in this case uh, perhaps they they don't uh, um, I mean, in a sense, it it indicates a mindset, a mindset where they really don't try to understand uh, the problems of the other side and simply treat them as routine, whereas they expect the other side to be highly sensitive and to look at their problems in the way that the Chinese look at it. That's just part of their psyche, I believe. And it's one of the weak points of Chinese diplomacy. It's a point that I think countries are beginning to understand and exploit. Uh, there are many weaknesses in China's negotiating uh, abilities. Uh, some of
1: those I've brought out in the book.
0: And I uh, I think we have to, to, to leverage
1: them. We have to use them. Coming to how their leaders negotiate, uh, you make a very important uh, point that it's rare that their top leadership actually gets into the nitty-gritty of negotiations. Uh, and I am assuming that's especially true of the Xi Jinping era, where Xi is obviously this larger-than-life leader, Uh, considering the fact that they don't usually like to get their top leaders directly involved in negotiating specific issues, which you mentioned in the book, what would you say are the benefits of countries wanting to engage directly with the top leadership, for instance, as we did with those informal summits, if the actual nitty-gritty of negotiations Takes place at a lower level. What exactly does the higher level kind of uh, engagements provide in terms of direction to the relationship?
0: Anand, the reluctance of the Chinese leadership at the very top to get into a negotiation is not new. It is not uh, a phenomenon we are seeing under President Xi Jinping. If you uh, recall, even during the Kissinger uh, during the kissinger and lai talks. Uh, Mao never met either Kissinger or even Nixon until the discussions with lesser leaders was over. And in both cases, because the transcripts are now easily available on the internet, you will see that Mao never actually spoke of anything concrete. He spoke of philosophy, he spoke of books, he spoke of worldview in a very elliptical way. Uh, I think this tendency uh, essentially is not a foreign policy uh, tendency. It is very much part of Chinese Communist Party politics. Uh, the, the the less clear you are as a top leader, the easier it is to maneuver out of a difficult situation. And I can correlate any number of events from Mao to, to Deng to Xi, uh, where uh, the, the senior most leader has been veiled in order to avoid making a commitment. And one of these, I very clearly bring out in my first book, Thienanman Square: The Making of a Protest, where at the height of the agitation, when General Secretary Chao Ziyang tries to meet Deng Xiaoping to resolve an issue, Deng is mysteriously ill and unable to receive him. And uh, uh, so, Chao Ziyang is left interpreting uh, Deng's view, but eventually Dhan can go either way. He allows, gives himself the flexibility to go either way. So my own sense is this is a, a very wise tactic that they use to avoid getting trapped. And it's more often used domestically than in, in foreign affairs. That having been said, Anand, we all know that in the 21st century, where uh, digital communications have become de rigueur, they have become the order of the day. Uh, there is a more and more of a tendency of leaders to talk directly to each other. Uh, and we've seen this in telephone diplomacy, in pull assigns, in uh, uh, meetings in the margins of international conferences, meetings at the airports while you're flying from country A to country B and you transit to country C. Uh, so, in a sense, direct diplomacy or leadership diplomacy has become an essential part of this. Now, this, I think, again may perhaps be one of the weaknesses of the Chinese of Chinese diplomacy, because Chinese leaders are not comfortable doing that. But of course, by not engaging directly with the leaders of other countries, you miss out many diplomatic opportunities. So I think that, in a sense, this is a weakness of Chinese diplomacy. However, the main point that I make in the book is that we should not engage in leadership diplomacy with the Chinese with the expectation that we will get an immediate result. Uh, uh, So long as we are clear on this, it should be our effort to engage in direct diplomacy. It should be our uh, effort for the leadership in India to get a good understanding firsthand of the leadership of any other foreign country, and particularly of China.
1: One uh, question on the wolf warrior term that you also mentioned in the book, is it fair to say that many of the sort of uh, foundational uh, guiding principles in which to negotiate uh, more or less remain the same? Do you think it's more about uh, substance or is it just style, this emergence of new Chinese diplomats who are tweeting and happy to uh, wag their fingers at their host countries?
0: I think this is entirely style, and there is no change in substance by, by that I don't mean that Chinese negotiating capabilities, tactics and strategy in 1949 uh, remains unchanged in 2019 because that does go in, undergo an evolutionary process as has the diplomacy of India and any other country. But what I do mean to say is that this does not reflect the fundamental deviation. From China's core negotiating principles. It is simply a style. And therefore, I think we should not pay too much attention to it uh, because the more we pay attention to it, the more excitable we become, the more the Chinese sort of turn the screws. Uh, We just need to uh, get over it and get down to business. And I think the Chinese are shrewd enough to realize when we see through things. Uh, There are a number of uh, instances in the book where uh, the Chinese realize that the game is up and then they get down to business. So I think we should deal with them in that
1: way. A final uh, question, uh, just broadly speaking about the current state of relations, I would be remiss in not asking. It struck me that many of the themes of your book uh, are so relevant to today uh, when you speak about the importance of having our own red lines, the importance of being patient. Uh, the importance of not being rushed into maybe piecemeal solutions to problems. Just broadly speaking, how would you sort of advise uh, Indian officials to proceed at this point where it seems that we are at a kind of crossroads for the relationship, where it seems that perhaps the old model is, is in a sense, being revisited? Uh, You're in a strange situation where India is saying that the relationship is in a new normal state because of what's happened on the boundary. But then you have the Chinese who are insisting publicly in statements that nothing has changed. How would you sort of uh, lay out how India should approach this new moment in the relationship in light of some of the themes you've mentioned in your book about how the Chinese are likely to view this moment?
0: Anand, I don't think I'm in a position to offer any advice. Uh, I think there is enough wisdom inside the government to do that. But essentially, I think the the manner in which we have handled the uh, situation in Eastern Ladakh is more or less uh, along the correct lines. Uh, I think the the message that has been delivered by the government of India that we cannot, on the one hand, have a disturbed situation on the line of actual control, while on the other hand, returning to business as normally in every other aspect of our bilateral relationship is a message which uh, I think is both clear uh, and uh, uh, can be easily backed up by action. So uh, my sense is that, uh, I mean, I can only conclude that uh, the learning process in dealing with China continues, but we are uh, sufficiently, uh, uh, I think we have sufficiently absorbed the lessons of the past. And I am quite confident that we have the wherewithal, uh, diplomatically speaking, because this is essentially a book on diplomacy, uh, diplomatically speaking, to deal with China. Uh, That having been said, of course, I do want to add that uh, because uh, China's national power or comprehensive power is substantially greater than ours, it is always going to be a challenge to deal with China diplomatically. Uh, And therefore, we have to keep ourselves current and we have to continue to to keep the learning process going. And so I really hope that uh, my book will both be an interesting read for anybody who's curious about India-China relations, as well as a sort of uh, reference book in case any of our future uh, diplomats want to look at uh, examples of how China negotiated previously.
1: There's so much more uh, we didn't get into from Pokhran to Sikkim, but we don't want to give away the whole book. Obviously, I encourage everyone to read it for themselves. And I completely do endorse the fact that I think people will find it interesting, regardless of the fact if you're just interested in China, if you are a diplomat starting out, or maybe you are somebody, maybe it may even push someone to get into diplomacy as you make things seem really immediate. And I think you've done a fantastic service to anyone who wants to try and understand China, which is obviously such an important issue for India today. Vijay Gokhale, author of The Long Game, How the Chinese Negotiate with India. Thank you so much for joining the Hindu Books Podcast today.
0: Thank you for having me on the podcast. Thank you for listening to The Hindu on Books. You can now find the Hindu's podcasts such as In Focus and Parlay on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other major platforms. Write to us with comments and feedback at Socmed4, S-O-C-M-E-D-4 at the rate thehindu.co.in.